So for the last 11 weeks, we have been looking at the story of the Bible. And we said the Bible is 66 books, probably at least that many authors, written over a period of anywhere from 500 to 1,500 or more years. And it, but it tells one story, one unified story about God's love and God's actions that God created. Human beings disobeyed and fell into sin and alienation and disobedience and went away from God. And then the story of God's reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation. And um, we talked about how reconciliation comes despite our disobedience that God calls a people, a family called Israel. Uh, he delivers them from slavery when they're in Egypt, forms them into a nation. When they disobeyed, allows, and in fact even leads foreign, uh, government, uh, foreign government called Babylon and Assyria to take them into captivity, into exile, then brings them home and forms a new nation. And from that nation uh, comes, uh, comes Jesus. Jesus, the one fully God, but yet fully human, descended from Adam, descended from Abraham, descended from David, uh, to become Savior, to be uh, the one who, is, uh, who lived a perfect life, uh, the one who uh, was sacrificed for sin, was given over to death, and willingly accepted death and the cross, uh, that, that was a sign of God's self-giving, and was the means by which uh, the power of sin and death is defeated. And uh, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God formed a new community, a new Israel called the church. This one, not a, an ethnic community, but a community of the whole world, people of all ages, nations, and races, as our baptismal covenant puts it, who are joined together. And when we looked at it, we looked at then those stories, those letters that were written to those early communities of the Church of Jesus Christ, that's those spirit-empowered communities. And uh, we talked about how uh, they were two communities that faced real issues, that things weren't always perfect. We see those first few chapters of Acts and so ideal, um, by first few I mean like three if that, um, but then they fell apart into human drama. <laughs> First Corinthians, division over wealth. Uh, we see stories of false teaching getting into the church, that, that insistence on both correct teaching and correct living. The, um, and then also facing down persecution. Those were the, that was the element of the early church, to remain faithful to Jesus, to be part of Jesus overcoming the powers of the world. That, that comes out in those letters, and I think that's a good prelude to today when we look at the final book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation. And Revelation is a book that a lot of us have probably heard of. We've probably, probably heard some people on the radio or the television talking about it. And it's, a, it's an interesting and different kind of book. I thought today I would wear black because we were studying the book of Revelation. Someone said, I've never seen you wear black. I said, I don't wear black. I wore this because I thought today, you know, Revelation, we, we see stories of, of destruction and uh, you know, death and... <laughs> pestilence, and so I thought I'd wear black because, hey, you know, that seems to make sense. But someone told me earlier, but, but Revelation is really not a book about destruction. and It is a book about apocalypse. Uh, it, is, it is also a book of profound hope. It's also a book of profound hope. Now, some of you already know that, and that's wonderful. Um, this, it is a book that is uh, primarily written in the, uh, in the nature of, uh, of these churches that are being persecuted. Uh, Revelation was written uh, probably in the second half of the first century. A scholars debate whether it was written during the period of the emperor Nero. Uh, Nero, it is thought, uh, set the city of Rome on fire, burned it down, uh, some say because he wanted to expand his already enormous palace, and there were lots of houses and people in the way, and then he blamed the Christians for it. The Christians were a small uh, sect at the time. They were unpowerful. 
and uh, many of them were, were killed during that first organized persecution in the, in the 50s A.D. Uh, some were thrown to lions. You've heard these stories. It was said in one case that uh, Nero had them uh, wrapped in cloth and a flammable uh, liquid and set them on fire to, to be human torches at his garden party, which really makes you wonder what it was like to be a guest at that garden party. Um, uh, that would have, uh, I, 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 and part of it, and I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because there is such a, there's another class we'll do sometime. It may not be in this lifetime, I don't know, uh, where I wanted to, about how Christianity changed the world. And, and one of the main things is the value of life. The idea that life could be a value um, is a sign of Christianity because life was not valuable in the Roman world. Uh, the idea of that life could be in and of itself, to, apart from anything that you do or have or that, that could be valuable, eternally valuable, is a legacy of the Christian faith. Um, and so that is, uh, and, and so that's why, you know, for example, the Declaration of Independence uh, is, says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, I, I'm not going to go too deeply on what I believe about the, you know, Christian foundations of the early republic. Tom Ellis could probably, could should share a little more with us about that at another time. But, um, but simply to say that, that 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 idea of reverence for life is something that does come with the Christian faith. But now I'm getting off track, actually, because we're going to talk a little bit about Revelation. It's written, it could have been written then. It may have also been written in the 90s during the Emperor Domitian. Most scholars believe that. Domitian was another time of persecution. Uh, Domitian was someone who was pretty high on himself. Uh, one other distinction of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam uh, is the absolute distinction between humans and God. And we take that for granted. You know, we always say, what it, what's a lot of the story is that there is a God and you're not him. You've heard that before? That was not a distinction they so easily made in the Roman period. In fact, Domitian, it said, he liked being called in written and oral address as Dominus et Deus, Latin for Lord and God. So, and in fact, he would then, this is really interesting, and so it was believed in that time that he would then uh, require, he then also reinstated the traditional Greco-Roman religions. You think of the one like Zeus slash Jupiter and Neptune and Poseidon, you know, I'm going on, you, you, you learned about that at one time, I'm sure. Uh, he brought a lot of that imperial religion, and the emperor was a god, and that spread around the Roman world, especially in this area of Asia Minor in present-day Turkey, and uh, that, uh, in fact, they would uh, come and they would often require people to come and make reverence to the emperor, which often involved lighting a bit of incense. And if you were in today's lunch study, you understand the you know, incense, the role of incense. They would light incense and they would say, Caesar is Lord. Does anyone see what may have been a conflict here? So who tended to be the people who couldn't say that? Christians. Christians. Why, could, why, why, why could the Christians not do it? Because Jesus is Lord. So do you understand that? What, what is, do you know the earliest confession of faith in the Christian church is what? Jesus is Lord. Do you see, see the parallels there? And so what happened is if they couldn't say Caesar is Lord, if they didn't believe Caesar was a god, they didn't believe all the other gods and the temples, the charge, this is true, the most common early charge against Christian, Christians was that they were atheists. They didn't believe in God. We got all these gods. We got gods for everything. And you know how many of those the Christians believe in? Zip zero of them. <laughs> I mean, of our gods. How many of their gods did Christians believe in? Zip zero, none. <laughs> and so they're atheists. They were accused of atheism. They were accused of being bad citizens. They were accused of undermining those things that made Rome great. So that's the culture 
in which Revelation is written. Um, so some of those people, uh, they, in fact, I was reading some stuff from the early 2nd century, a little later, and they said, well, uh, you know, I've got these Christians, what is the usual penalty from them? The ones who really won't, the ones who will repent and say, I believe Caesar is God, that's fine, they can go with a warning. But, those, but there are some, they're crazy enough uh, to, believe, to refuse that, and they keep saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, he says, I guess I have to execute them then. And that's what happened. Um, and some of them, if they were higher status, well, I sent them to Rome. They're nuts. <laughs> They're crazy people. And, and some of them were even, uh, the, the, they had a punishment uh, that, was, uh, that was called, um, uh, that was uh, a deportation to an island. And so well, they, would, they would send you off to an island or they would imprison you. Uh, they would imprison you. Uh, a relegation was the name of that. They would relegate you to imprisonment on an island or deportation to an island. Uh, that is still happens. You know, New York City, the, the, the large prison in New York City is on Rikers Island. The famous prison in San Francisco Bay, Alcatraz, um, even in the own history of our nation and uh, European history, they would relegate criminals to islands, thus the formation of Australia. Um, parts of Australia and, and uh, the state of Georgia, which I've always felt is full of criminals. But uh, <laughs> no, no. I, uh, in fact, uh, I'm going to get off topic for a second here. John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism, their first job, job in, in, in Christian ministry was to be uh, missionaries to the uh, convicts who were sent to Georgia. I don't, you know, Savannah is a city founded by criminals. Uh, think about that when you go there. Um, it wasn't as nice as it is now, though. It was actually a really intolerable place to live, which you can believe if you've been there in August. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have all those nice trees and the moss, hanging moss. I don't think they had as much of it. It wasn't as attractive then. So, uh, so, so they would do that. And one of the people who gets deported to an island is a guy named John. Now, some suggest he may have been the same John who was a disciple of Jesus. He may have been the John who was involved in writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, that may have, it may have been him, but, but I will say, for the record, he does not say that. He, he simply says his name is, a, he is a servant named John. Um, we don't know uh, whether that is. The, uh, in the 2nd century, about 50 years after this was written, they started saying this is the Apostle John, but again, it's not in the text. You, you, it's one of those things, if you believe it, there's uh, you can believe it. If you don't believe it, uh, that's okay too. We we do not have a definitive a biblical answer, but there is a biblical. There is tradition in the early part of the church of saying it is the apostle, and that's his later years or lived out in in on the island of Patmos, and he's there for life. It's life without parole to this island, uh, so he will not be coming back, but he tells us that Jesus will be. And so he he uh, so this begins by saying that uh, that uh, John writes a, a letter to seven churches that are in Asia. These are not I don't believe are seven metaphorical churches, so they might be. Uh, they are seven churches that falls within that uh, what we call the epistolary or the letter writing tradition. Seven churches, and uh, and there he writes to them and he says uh, mm -hmm. that. I uh, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, and then I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches. And he turns and he says, when I turned, I looked to find a person, but I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of them. I saw one like the Son of Man. I want to put a period here for a second. What you see over and over in Revelation is you see one who is, what's that four-letter word, like. Now, if you studied a little bit of English language and composition in school, you know that when you see the word like, it is a simile. Simile, S-M-I-I-L-E. A simile, uh, what does that say? Is When someone says it is like a trumpet, does that mean it is literally a trumpet? Similar. 
No, it is like a trumpet. So keep in mind, uh, a lot of times we want to harden and literalize the imagery here, but over and over we are betrayed by this idea that it is like something. So if it is like something, it uh, means one of two things. It means, one, that uh, John doesn't know very much and he can't identify things. I think that's unlikely. I think because what you are seeing, I think the second is more likely. And that is that John is seeing things that are beyond human understanding. We, we as humans like to categorize everything. It's how we make sense of the world. Uh, when you sat down on this chair that you came and sat down on, uh, some of you, uh, you, you decided, is this a soft or hard chair? Now, Joe and Russ decided this was a hard chair, and so they got two even softer <laughs> chairs in the back. <laughs> but, but, you know, you make distinctions. And, you know, if you were to describe this chair, you would have other, other ways to describe it. It's kind of a green, it's a greenish-gray color. It uh, doesn't recline, and it's got kind of these bronze legs on them. Um, you, you can describe a lot of things, the cup that might be in front of you uh, or the Bible. You can describe them in concrete terms because they are concrete things that are within your human experience. But here what we see is examples of things that are not within uh, our human experiences. And so he uh, writes these letters, and there are messages to seven churches. Now, a lot of times we, br we brush by these messages, but I think these seven messages are key to understanding what is going on. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to quickly pass through these seven letters to seven churches. So they have a similar form every time. They begin, to the angel in the church in Ephesus write. Now, angel is a word that in Greek, angelos, means messenger. Uh, it, it could mean an angel in the sense we think of it. It could also mean to uh, the one who receives the mail. <laughs> I hate to make things kind of simple like that, but simple, uh, I think, works for me at least. Uh, write this. He, the, this is this is he is the, you know we talk about sometimes the Bible they're inspired by the Spirit and what is inspired it may not be literal dictation. Well, this is literal dictation. Write this down. He says he says so to Ephesus says I know your work I know your toil your patient endurance I know you cannot tolerate evil doers you have tested those who claim to be apostles are not but are not and have found them to be false. Again, there we see the standard we saw in the letters. When he tested them to be apostles, it was probably both based both on what they taught and how they lived and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember what you have from then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first, so there's a word of congratulations and a word of correction, saying you have done good things. You, you are one to test. You know uh, what is true and what is false, uh, but, but you have abandoned the love you have at first. You have become uh, probably paralyzed with judgment instead of love. And so he says, well, if you're going to follow me, tell this church, if they're going to follow me, they don't need to necessarily stop being vigilant of false teaching, but they do need to love. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Message one. Message two, in, in uh, Smyrna, says, uh, Smyrna, uh, I know your affliction and your poverty even though you are rich. I know that you're slandered by those who say they are Jews. They are my people, but they are not. That are synagogue of the devil. You're going to suffer. Don't be afraid. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested. Ten days you'll have affliction. Uh, may it not be literal ten days. Yes, sir. In the last letter, uh, our version had lampstand removed by Christ. Yes. Is that excommunication? Um, so go back to the beginning of chapter 2. I think it might be a key there. It says in verse 1, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Um, I, I kind of read, I, I tend to read it there as uh, that uh, the lampstands are the light, um, the, the light of the connection. I, I think when I see light, 
I think I see Christ there, their connection. Um, because what happens is uh, when, when love fails, uh, um, think about what happens to the spirit. Uh, when love fails, what will happen is they'll become rigid and they'll actually lose because the connection we have with Jesus is first and foremost one of love. That would be just my kind of off the top of thinking there would be that I think it is about that connection saying, you know, if, if you're going to keep becoming harsh and judgmental, you, you, will, you may lose the whole thing. In trying to defend what you believe is true, uh, you may lose the whole point. To win the battle, lose the war. That's, that's what, I kind of, what I sense there. So Smyrna, they're afflicted, uh, and they are tormented, they are persecuted, and what he is saying to them is be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful till you die, and I will give you life. Do you see that? So, so what he says there is, uh, uh, you, you may die on earth, but you will live. Whoever conquers will not be handled by the second death. So Pergamum comes. Pergamum comes, and to the angel there, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Uh, you're, you're enduring through persecution. Uh, Antipas, my witness, my martyr, my faithful one, was killed among you. You're in a place where Satan lives. Now, Pergamum is a place that is central to the imperial cult, to the place where the emperor is worshipped. You see the parallels here? It is, uh, the, all seven cities had imperial cult, uh, uh, either altars, priests, or, or cults, you know, organizations. And, uh, but I have a few things against you. You have been, you have endured through persecution, but you have some there who, who uh, hold to false teachings. They're, they're eating food, sacrificed to idols. They're, they're saying, well, I can believe in Jesus and also worship these other gods. They're practicing uh, fornication, sexual immorality. And uh, you have some who, who uh, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It was kind of, that were the false teachers. And saying, so repent then. I'm glad that you endure through suffering, but repent against letting uh, everyone uh, teach and live, even if it is against what, uh, what I have taught you. Um, so that would be my, that would be there on the message to Pergamum, is this uh, message of, uh, of continue to persist, but also don't tolerate uh, false teaching that leads people away. See, this teaching thing, this false teaching thing is, is tricky. Because that, because if you become so obsessed like the church in Ephesus was, you could lose love. But then, if you say, "Well, we'll just let every, we'll just let it all in," he says, "Well, then you'll introduce things that will destroy the faith of your people." So he's saying, "You know, repent from that. Uh, do not include people who live in ways that are not uh, that are not godly." Uh, and then says there, to everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. But then in Thyatira, the word comes there. He says, uh, once again, uh, I know your works. You love, you have faith, you serve, you endure. Uh, you're getting better and better, but you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, is that actually her name? Probably not. But it is a reflection of something we studied earlier. The queen who was against, against, God's, against God and God's uh, prophets in the Old Testament. Now she says she is a prophet. And she says it's okay to have sexual immorality and to worship other gods. And, I, you know, and, and, and he's saying, I, I even gave her time to repent. That's a sign that, that, that Jesus loves her, but she will not repent. And so I am going... Uh, to throw her into great distress, and I will strike her children dead. Now, I suspect that probably means spiritual children. It may mean literal. Again, I, Revelation, I am so hesitant to say what is literal and what is figurative. I don't think it's all literal. Um, but again, here we don't have like. It says, I will strike, and what it's saying is, but I think figurative makes more sense, to be honest with you. What he's saying is, those who follow those, uh, their spirits will die. Their spirits will die. But to those of you who do not hold these teachings, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, 
which is really a cool name for a class, but a really bad idea in general. Uh, hold fast to the one uh, who uh, conquers that you will receive authority. So he says that again. Endure. Do not tolerate false teaching and false living. To Sardis. He says, look at Sardis. He says, you have a name of being alive, but you're dead. This is chapter 3 now. And wake up. For I have not found your works perfect. Wake up. Repent. Turn to me. Be prepared. There are still a few who are still walking worthy. And if you repent, you can be like them too. And you will not lose your place in the book of life. To the church of Philadelphia, he speaks positively to them. Say they're, they're being persecuted too by those who claim to be Jews as well, but are not, but are lying. That you will, even though you're being persecuted by them, turned over to the authorities by them, uh, you uh, will endure over them. And the final, final church, Laodicea, writes to them and says, I wish that you were either cold or hot and you're neither of them. It's interesting that they say that this has a lot to do with Laodicea itself. Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was a city known as a place of uh, medicinal salves for the eye. It was a place of, uh, of great culture. But they had one problem in Laodicea. They weren't near a source of water. And so there in Turkey, which is kind of a little desert-like, water was brought in by that great Roman innovation called the aqueduct. You know, some of you, maybe if you've traveled in Europe, you've seen the ruins of them. These great towers that carry water long distances. And it, they were open in many cases to carry water. So when the water got there, if it was cold water, what would happen after it was sat out in the sun all day? What would happen to it? It'd get warm. What happens if it's hot water they're pumping in and it's been out all day? It gets cooler. So when you get it, it's traveled a long way in lead pipes in the open sun. What does it taste like? What does it smell like? And how good is it for you? <laughs> right? See, they knew that. He's saying, your faith is as lukewarm as your water in Laodicea, which probably strikes me as quite an ancient insult. And then he says there, he says, and you say, you're in a rich town. There are rich te people in a rich town. You're rich, I've prospered, I have nothing. And you do not realize you're a wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so the advice, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, white robes to clothe you. Is that literal? I don't think so. It may be. He may say your money is keeping you from trusting me. He may say your pride is keeping me, your fine clothes are keeping you from trusting me. My salve for me, your sense of your own ability to treat your illnesses <laughs> may be keeping you from trusting me. I don't know if you're feeling uncomfortable all of a sudden. <laughs> some of you, some of us might, myself included, might feel a little uncomfortable by this in a day of prosperity and having enough to eat and clothe ourselves with and the ability to get good doctors at any time. But even then, some of us have the experience that we know that no matter how much money we have or how many doctors we can see or whatever, it's not enough. It's not enough. And so he says, I reprove and discipline those whom he loves. He still loves them. And so what he does is he introduces these seven churches. And that's the prelude. And some say, well, that's the prelude. And we'll just, then we'll get on to the real action. No, what we see in the rest of this is clearly drawn out of those seven churches. What he's saying is you're in these situations where the world is coming against you. Whether it's the world and the way it forms you by leading you like the Laodiceans to trust in your own wealth, in your own uh, scientific ability. Whether it is uh, like the church that is beset by persecution. Uh, whether it is the church beset by a desire to... Uh, to um, to please, whatever it is, whatever it is Jesus is calling them out for, it both applies to them, but I think we can read it today. 
I think within it, we can see our own struggles. Some have suggested that the churches refer to historical ages. That ends up being a little unconvincing to me. It tends to privilege uh, the period of the, 18th, the, the evangelical revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries, which were certainly good times, but I'm not sure they represent the high point in entire Christian history. Uh, which it would kind of say there, and there's other reasons. Uh, but what we see here, both letter in literal sense to the people of, of that day, but also for us today. Revelation is really interesting because when you look at these seals and scrolls and trumpets and bowls, sounds like a Dr. Seuss rhyme when you think about it. <laughs> I just thought about that. Um, what you see there is something that is both meaningful, that, that some people say, well, it was written for the people in the first century in the midst of their struggles, and that's what it's about. Which really doesn't make it all that relevant to us except as historical curiosity. But then some say, well, it, didn't, it wasn't for them. It was written for the end of times. And it's always those people who say, those people weren't in the end of times, but now we are. <laughs> but here's the thing. In the, early, in the first century, they had more of a consciousness of being in the end times than we do today. If you read First, uh, first Thessalonians, for example, and Second Thessalonians, it deals with a church that's absolutely convinced Jesus is returning tomorrow. And you think, well, that's nice. Well, they quit their jobs. <laughs> They're like the people who go up on the mountain. <laughs> They're like, Jesus is coming. And Paul's like, you all should probably do good things. Like, don't have him find you on top of a mountain. Have him find you working in, in doing good. That's, that's the message of 1 Thessalonians in a nutshell. And he said, you know, Jesus may come, but he may not come today. He may come today. We need to be as ready for Jesus to come today as in 50,000 years. And I think because if that's the message, I think Revelation has both temporal and time universal uh, stories and lessons. Because when we look at chapter 4, we see the, the scene turns from letters on earth to a scene in heaven. And what we see here, I think, is this word that, uh, that the verdict has been cast. That uh, we, we talked about on the cross, and I speak of this often, that, that uh, sin and death is eternally judged on the cross. That the power of sin and the power of death pressed down on Jesus. The weight of your sin and my sin of all times and all places pressed down on Jesus and kill him. But three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead and defeats the power of sin and death. And that's really true and powerful. But here's the problem. I suspect many of you hear it and you wonder, why do I still sin and why do people die? Have you ever thought about that? If Jesus' cross and resurrection, it defeats the power of sin, it defeats the power of death, why do people still sin and die? And I think here in Revelation, the vision partially uh, does that because they're hearing this. Jesus has defeated sin and death, and they're like, people are dying and we're still sinning. And what he's saying here is that in a, in a sense, the war is over, but it's not quite done yet. Does sin and death have eternal power? Do they? The Revelation says no. They may have power today, but when we look at heaven, we see that the verdict has been cast, and that one day the faithful will conquer and the wicked will be judged. But now, if you want to be part of that future, be faithful in times of persecution. Repent of sin and false teachings. Re repent of your lethargy and your cowardice, your unwillingness to stand up. <clears throat> repent of that and live in such a way that befits that Jesus has already won. I think that's the message of Revelation. Because when we get to heaven, we see this amazing throne room. A lot of likes there. The, throne, the, the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian. Around the throne, a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne, 24 thrones and 24 elders on the thrones and dressed in white robes and golden crowns. And there's lightning and thunder, and it's this amazing scene. 
And there, and then in the right hand of one seated on the throne, a scroll is written, and a voice proclaims, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seal? And they say, Oh, don't, wor- don't weep. This is chapter 5. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Things are getting excited here, but wait. And then he says, between the throne and the four living creatures, there at the center, there is a lamb. He's a lion, but there's a lamb. And it looks like it's been killed and has seven horns and seven eyes, the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And that lamb that has been killed is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. What's interesting about that? We talk about Jesus over, it's the most common reference to Jesus in the book of Revelation is as a lamb. Now, we have talked about how there is the Biblical image of lamb as one who is slaughtered, as one who is sacrificed. And what he is saying here, the one who holds the power of judgment and triumph is the one who died. That's powerful, isn't it? That he says, and there, and, and when we're looking into a world where the great, what's the greatest, most uh, definitive thing that the Roman Empire can do to someone? kill them. And who's the one who is actually in charge of the destiny of all humanity? Someone who has been killed by the Romans. Do you see the message there? We're starting to get the message of Revelation here. He's starting to, I know it's really funny, but he's saying there, he's saying that one, the one who will execute what is to come is the one who has been slain the lamb who has been slain and so that's why he says be faithful unto death and i will give you a crown of life because whether or not you live or die on earth is not as important as whether you live or die in eternity and so the lamb opens seven seals and we see there a white horse second seal comes a red horse a third seal comes a black horse Damaging the economy, a fourth horse, a pale green horse whose name is death. So we see pestilence, we see, uh, uh, we see warfare, uh, we see uh, conquering. Uh, one scholar says what we see when we, the, the seals open is we see, the, 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 um, we see human depravity upon the earth. You know, pestilence, warfare, conquering, uh, you know, the economy going south, death. Uh, it says, uh, the fifth seal is the souls of those who had been killed for the word of God, crying out, how long, O Lord, will it be? The sixth seal, natural disaster uh, that strikes uh, everyone on earth. And so those seals, some suggest, represent human uh, depravity. And then the seventh seal comes and there's silence. And then there is seven trumpets. Seven trumpets, some suggest, representing demonic activity. Uh, the things uh, like water becoming bitter, the sea becoming blood, uh, fires upon the earth. It, it has some imagery uh, to uh, the, the plagues of Egypt. Uh, really, locusts uh, looking like horses equipped for battle. One of the more humorous things was uh, one, some years ago uh, during the beginning of helicopters. Some suggested those were early; those were helicopters. He couldn't explain. I, it, it, there are many ways that people try to explain these in terms of contemporary events, and that may be true. There may come a day when it happens this way, but I think what he is writing is simply to tell us is to say, you know, that that when all of this is yet released. The, uh, uh, the, the, the human depravity, the demonic activity, later we're going to see the bowls that are released um, that are the wrath and judgment of God. Uh, we see standing up against the beast. It's all ready. The, and then among all the depravity, which I suspect might represent the depravity of the world, 
all that among that depravity there is this one that is a beast that says it is in charge of everything what is the number of the beast 666 or 666 now 6 is that 7 is the number of perfection so there's lots of sevens well 6 is the number of imperfection right so 6 is the number of imperfection and um, um, and there the, the, the beast number six six six. Now there is also a sense that in Jewish tradition there's something called gematria, uh, which is letters uh, and numbers. And it is suggested that if you line the letters out of and then convert them to numbers, if six hundred sixty six is the gematria of Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar. Now, some say, well, that's a sign it's written to the time, during the reign of Nero. It could be, though, written during the time of Domitian, who is seen by Christians as a second Nero. Now, you say, well, why, do they, why didn't he just say it? Why didn't he just say it, for heaven's sakes? Why is he burying it under these images and these numbers that may mean letters? I want to say one thing is you don't live in the first century. There are some of these images that would have made more sense. Laodicea, everyone knew them as a city with everything going for it but bad water. You didn't have to be explained that. Now, other people knew, you know, that now does Revelation ever refer to Rome by name? No. What is, what, if you've read it, what, what, is, what is the beast called? No, represent. According to this, it represents Babylon, right? The ancient enemy of the Jews, the great empire of the past. Well, see, and the other reason, and I think it's key to understanding a lot of ancient literature, is today we take for granted something called freedom of speech. You can write something, and the government may not like what you write. The president may not like what you write. The, Congress, the Speaker of the House of Representatives may not like what you write. There's a couple of you I can think of for that. Um, but, you know, they can't throw you in jail. But, but see, they did not have this in the ancient world, right? Did not have freedom of speech. So if they wrote something, it had to be coded. Had to be coded, had to be, had to be something that maybe the insiders would know, but to the outsiders, it's like, you know, this guy's written a fantasy novel. But yet having deep spiritual meaning then I believe people would have understood this message that God is coming to finish the job. This story of, of um, this story from the beginning of restoration, that by doing this, God is dealing with, in these symbolic terms, the powers uh, of human depravity, demonic activity, by, uh, by, by the wrath and the judgment of God. And so the beast comes and then falls. And when uh, falls, it's something interesting in chapter 18, speaking lots about how when they fall, people mourn. You know, you think the beast is gone, you know, it's great, you know, it's like the end. But what he says is there reminds them that some of us when we look at the empires and powers of this world, some of us have become quite, have profited quite handsomely from that. And I think a reminder that are you one who is profiting or are you one persecuted? Because if you are profiting, when the ways of this world fall, it will be not heaven to you, but hell. But that things that are not of God uh, will come to an end. You know, that uh, they said, Alas, alas, the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. All the great powers of the world, this is an ongoing story in the Bible, all the great powers of the world come to an end. The temple, you know, Jesus says that, and they say, look, he says, look at this temple. With, uh, with, with, with bricks, with blocks as big as Volkswagens. They probably didn't actually say that, but they were as big as Volkswagens. 
This will be torn down and not one stone will be left. And they said, you're crazy. And what happened 40 years later? Not one stone was left. The great empire of Rome that would last forever, by 476, what happened? So few people cared about Rome, it was taken. It was over. A reminder that nothing of this world lasts forever. In one hour, it's all been laid waste. And so for those who are connected to the powers of this world, revelation brings destruction. But for those who are connected to heaven, it brings rejoicing. Chapter 19 says that there is rejoicing in heaven. And there in the end, uh, then as the rejoicing comes, the rider on the white horse comes in the robe dipped of blood, and the name is called the Word of God, which is also the name given by John in chapter 1 of his gospel. And then comes, and the beast and the armies are defeated, and, over, and then there are a thousand years uh, where, um, where Christ reigns in the first resurrection, and then when that thousand years is ended, Satan will be released, and then will be the final battle, and at the end, not only will the powers of the world all be defeated and destroyed, but the power of evil, as we see in the person of Satan, is thrown into the lake of fire, and they will be tormented there day and night, forever and ever. Those who have died are judged, and to those whose names are in the book of life, uh, they will be, uh, they will, uh, uh, they, they will um, be checked, and those who are not in the book will be thrown also into the lake of fire, the second death, for anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which is really brutal. Um, what we're finding there is, from the beginning, we talked about that the entrance of sin and disobedience into the world in Genesis chapter 3. And now we see the vision here in the end in Revelation chapter 20, that sin and disobedience, those powers that enslave us in what theologians call original sin, those powers are eternally and forever defeated and gone. That's the story of Revelation. He's telling you that all those powers of sin and death that you are experiencing, they will be forever defeated. And then in chapter 21, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and the sea was no more. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, came down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and I heard a voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And then says what? It's done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give waters a gift from the spring of the water of life. And those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the, worship, the idolaters, the worshipers of false gods and the liars, their place, they're going to that lake we talked about earlier with the fire and the sulfur, the second death. See, what we see here in the end is God promises to restore all things. That all things will be restored. But when all things are restored, there will be a judgment. The power of sin and death will not be able to coexist with the power of life and healing. And when that happens, what side will you be on? That's the question Revelation asks. What side will you be on? Will you entrust yourselves to what God wants, or will you, be, or will you do what you want? Uh, will, you, uh, will you accept God's way? Will you repent? Will you turn? Will you accept God's grace now, while you can? Or will you reject it? Mm -hmm. 
That's the question. And he sets forth, Revelation sets forth two visions, two ends. Two ends. One end for the one who persists, for the one who has faith, for the one who believes, for the one who trusts, and one end for the one who does not trust, for the one who lives according to the world and not according to what Jesus would do, one who lives in disobedience rather than obedience. There will be a choice, and it will be an eternal one. That's the vision, but for those who commit themselves to Jesus, for those, uh, there will be a, a goal of everlasting life. That will happen. It won't just be a pie-in-the-sky image, but it will actually happen and describes it and says, blessed are they who wash their robes. They will have the right to the tree of life and will enter the city by the gates. Because you see, a garden was removed and destroyed. It was removed from people in the beginning. And now there will be a city. And now, once again, there will be a tree of life in the middle of it. The final and full restoration for all who will trust in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And so it ends with the words, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Now that's where it comes from at the end, is in the midst of this, this uh, d uh, uh, restoration, uh, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. But God is not slow, and Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, in fulfilling his promises, some would think of slowness, because God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so sorrow, as the psalmist say, may last for the night. But joy comes in the morning. And that's the hope that we have here. That in the end, even though we live in a world of disobedience, we live in a world of enmity, we live in a world of warfare, of pestilence, of strife, of anger, that God is going to make all things right. And God is going to make all things new. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And so this is it. We've reached the end, page 1,559 in my Bible. And we've looked at these books and this story. And I hope you will, will think deeply about this and you will, it will inspire you to spend time in God's Word uh, because it tells a story about us. It tells a story about uh, who we are and uh, who God calls us to be. And uh, so this is a powerful book about you, about me, and about the world. And it reminds us that uh, God is at work, that any separation, any trouble, uh, God has redeemed it in Jesus and will make all things well. As we end this today, we end as we do when we read the scripture. Uh, for 11 weeks we've looked at this, and so I, I tell you, you know, I announce, you know, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Thanks.